is Downtown the Podcast. Welcome in, episode 24. From the Zone Radio Studios, Bangor, Maine, where the Downtown Radio Show originates every Monday through Friday from 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. On Zone Radio, WZON AM 620, Bangor, WKIT HD3, and of course, streaming audio on our website at downtownwithrichkimball.com and on the WZON app. Rich Kimball here. Carrie Haskell as well. It's uh, well, it's the midst of fall and football season, so it's a, a football-heavy show today. Old school NFL and the modern game being represented by two authors with really terrific books about the game of football, Mark Leibovich and Jack Gilden coming up. We remind you first that Downtown the Podcast is brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. And by the folks at Nice Brewing Company, Limerick, Maine, German-style beer from the woods of Maine. Well, let's begin our conversation with author Jack Gilden. It was part of our Sports Lit 101 segment with Bruce Pratt discussing a Jack's book, Collision of Wills, Johnny Unitas, Don Shula, and the Rise of the Modern NFL. Man, oh man, could not put the book down. I, I read it in, in a night because it was so good, and then... Bruce and I said the same thing. We were we were sad to get to the final pages to see it end. It was that good a read. Oh well, thanks. I mean that that's uh, a high compliment. I love books like that myself. Well, you're a Baltimore guy, so obviously uh, uh, that's where uh, the love of this story came and the interest in the story. But uh, even with that and the prior knowledge that you had, I understand uh, this book took quite a few years for you to pull together. Yeah, I mean that might have been as much a product of um of my own incompetence as <laughs> as any other reason. It was my first book and I was trying to teach myself how to write a book, at, you know, as I went along. And the other thing is that my mother and my father both died while I was writing the book and uh for me writing really requires intense concentration and if something isn't quite right in my little world then it can throw me off track. Well, you can tell that you uh, have intense concentration because one of the greatest things about this book, and I said it when I talked about it on the air before, is the way it contextualizes an era. Um, that it, yes, it's about Johnny Unitas, yes, it's about Don Shula, it's about all those great cults that many people have forgotten the Ray Berries, the Lenny Moores, the Donovans, the Gino Marchettis, but it puts football in the context of American history. In a way that that and we talked about a lot of football books on this program that most books don't do. Did you set out to consciously do that, or did that become part of the process? Well, it became part of the process, and actually, uh, I had no agent and no publisher for a very long time while I worked on the book, and a, a huge percentage of the book was written without one. So when I finally started to go look for those things. Uh, the aspect that you're talking about was something of a negative for me because what I found was that people wanted to put the story in a little box, you, you know, they want, in a category. They want to be able to say, this is a sports book or this is a social history book. And for me, I just like great, meaningful stories. I was setting out to write something that was really interesting and that would be relevant for our own times. And, uh, you know, that was my goal in it. And so when I started to get the feedback, it was very intimidating after doing so many years of, of research and, and writing to hear that feedback. But I kind of stuck to what I thought was a good story, what I would have enjoyed reading. And then I went out and found myself a, a, an agent and a publisher that agreed with me. 
Well, yeah, we love the University of Nebraska. They've, I think that's one of the best presses in America. We get a lot from them, Syracuse, Illinois, a lot of um, university presses, which I think the other thing that's really great about this book is you could have made this a sensational story about a clash of wills. You had it as a collision of wills, which I like much better because two very strong personalities, neither man is perfect by any stretch. They collide, but you don't try to take either man down. You try to put it in the context of history. Well, last week you did a, a, an on-air review of the book, and you said something that really, that really pleased me. It, it made me feel great because you seemed to get to exactly what I was trying to do. You said, he's not a finger pointer, he's an explainer. I don't know if you remember yes, saying that. Yes, I do. I thought about it on the drive up to the studio, actually. <laughs> well, it, was, it really pleased me to hear it because that's exactly how I see it. The, the world is filled with ideologues right now. Our country is being torn apart by ideology. And I don't really bring an ideology to the table. And I think as, as a journalist and as a writer, it would almost be disingenuous to do so. And instead, what I try to do is sit down and look at all of the facts, look at everything that happened, you know, take the information that's presented to me. And then I try to tell the story as truly and as accurately as I can, not beginning with my own personal biases about who's right, who's wrong. What does this say about about race relations? What does it say about gender relations? I just try to listen and learn. I try to read and learn. And then when I learn, I try to accurately represent the things that I find. And that's my method. Well, you certainly did it in spades here. Collision of Wills, Jack Gilden, the author with us here on Downtown. It had to be hard for Don Shula coming into this situation because uh, at that point, Unitas was already so well-established as arguably one of the top two or three players in the entire National Football League. And, and how much of the, the difficulties they had with each other came from the fact that, as you point out, Unitas didn't have a lot of respect for Don Shula, the player. Well, I think Don Shula thought that had everything to do with it. I, I think uh, Unitas had a very different perspective on it, which was that which was that Don Shula was a yeller and a screamer, and Don Shula tried to usurp uh, his play calling ability, and uh, those seemed to be the things that really irritated Unitas. Uh, Unitas never said this that I saw, but other people said it, and you could see it almost in the in the quotations. But not only did Shula kind of take the play-calling ability from him, but Shula was kind of a blamer. He kind of pointed fingers at Unitas quite a bit when things went wrong. And it, it was funny. There was a funny quote by Alex Hawkins, one of the you know, lesser players on the team, and, and he said, Whenever, when we win, we win as a team. But when we lose, it's all Johnny Unitas' fault. <laughs> and that, that was pretty accurate as to how it was sometimes especially after the 64 championship game when the Colts got shut out, but also gave up 27 points and Shula kind of pointed the, uh, the dirty end of the stick at Unitas. Well, one of the, uh, the, the things I think a lot of people forget is how dominant the Colts were and how dominant Johnny Unitas was a, a friend of the show. Upton Bell will argue till the last breath he takes that no one's been as good as Unitas. And I might agree how much, how much in, does Baltimore retain that history um, in a way that maybe the rest of the country doesn't? 
Well, I, there's the statue of Johnny U in front of in front of the modern day stadium, and for a long time, until recently, the marching band, uh, what was the the Colts marching band and became the Ravens marching band, they carried a flag in his honor that was blue and white with the number 19 on it. In in the last several years, I think the number of seats they had at the stadium were lessened, and the and the flag was finally put away because of that reason. But they, they, every time they marched, they, they carried the banner of number 19 with them. And uh, in Baltimore, he's revered like no other individual in the history. This is the city of H.L. Mencken. It's the city that, that protected America from foreign invasion in, in the War of 1812. Uh, we, we gave the world uh, um, uh, Thurgood Marshall, one of the most significant lawyers in the history of the country, but the one person that they focus on here is Johnny Unitas. They they love their connection to him. It's interesting, too, as a measure of how the game has changed, Jack, that these days, because of rule changes, quarterbacks, Tom Brady comes to mind, are pretty well protected and, um, well, I don't want to say soft, but, but there are some pretty boys out there playing <laughs> that position. Johnny Unitas was not that, and I love the story about Alex Karras, who says, hey, Unitas is every bit as intimidating as anybody on the defense. And so and you mentioned quite often when he'd have a chance to tackle Unitas, rather than throw him to the ground, he'd just kind of wrap his arms around him because he was intimidated by Unitas. Well, I think in his case, what he, what he was saying there was that he respected Unitas so much. The one who was intimidated by Unitas, or at least admitted it, was, was Merlin Olson, <laughs> who would smash Unitas to the ground and then uh, described being in the pileup with him and seeing his eyes open and those, those uh, bright eyes glaring back at him, showing no fear, no pain whatsoever, but just resolve. And he said, well, we knew. We knew, even as we're smashing him to the ground, we knew he's going to get right up and he's going to embarrass us. He's going to humiliate us. He's going to beat us in the last second. And he was an extraordinarily intimidating figure in that way. I think his style of play almost undressed those defenses that, and, and exposed these men and their weaknesses. And it was, it was, in some ways, deeply humiliating to them, but they respected what he could do. I can't imagine a quarterback being told he had to leave the field because he had a bloody nose and then just reaching down and sticking dirt up it so he didn't have to leave. Um, yeah, you know, I oh, mean, yeah. Unitas' toughness is, is legendary, but I, th- I also think that a, a younger generation may not understand what a brilliant field general he was. I'm a Giants fan. 1958 still hurts, okay? I mean, that game, yeah. probably the greatest game ever played. Unitas showed, showed not just his extraordinary physical ability, but his thinking. Well, he was a deeply intellectual football player by the standards of football players and within the context of the game of football. He was, he was extraordinarily intellectual. And the Colts themselves really tried to play up that aspect of him. I found photographs from the 1950s that ran in the, in the local newspapers of Johnny U with his shoulder pads on and his, his, his practice jersey on sitting at a, at a little children's uh, school desk, studying out of the notebook, watching the films, and uh, they really promoted the idea that he was this chess player and this, this thinker. Um, you know, one thing that you, were, you had made the connection to Tom Brady early on, I think that's where Tom Brady does resemble Unitas quite a bit. 
but you were talking about some of these players today being soft. I think that the game of football has lost some of its, it's not quite as compelling as it was in Unitas' day because I think the real attraction to that game, as wrong as it may be, was the danger of the quarterback. Sure. He's standing back there with barbarisms going on all around him, and he has to think his way out of that problem, and then he's going to get really smashed. He was the most vulnerable man on the field in those days, and now it almost feels like he's living in a gated community. Well, and as you pointed out, Earl Morrill suffered, uh, you know, he got when Marchetti got even with him, as it were, uh, he never was the same player again. No, that was Frank Ryan. Actually. I meant Frank Ryan. I'm sorry. And, 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 yeah. Right. And Ryan had had made the unfortunate decision of uh, continuing to go for a touchdown in the waning moments of that championship game. And uh, and so uh, Marchetti told him he was going to get him. And then the next week there was the Pro Bowl, and they really smashed him. And uh, I don't think that Marchetti himself ever knew just how much damage that that he did to Frank Ryan. Ryan was laid up for for months. He was in a full body cast. When they uh, first patched him up at the field itself, they put some sort of an adhesive from his arm onto his chest so his arm was connected to his chest. And then when they wanted to separate it later on, they had to lacerate the skin to do it. Oh. And uh, and then finally, the, the, the shoulder and the arm were never the same again. That guy enjoyed an unbelievable moment of redemption that day in, in the championship game. And then by by a week later, it was all over for him in, in, a, in a lot of uh, tangible ways. We're talking with Jack Gilden, author of Collision of Wills, Johnny Unitas, Don Shula, and the Rise of the Modern NFL. Is the Don Shula that worked with Johnny Unitas in Baltimore a work in progress? How is he different from the Don Shula who became the Miami Dolphins head coach? Well, in a couple of key ways. Interestingly, Shula was the engineer of the perfect season in Miami, but his winning percentage in Baltimore was was higher. Uh, his best days were in Baltimore. His salad days were in Baltimore, believe it or not. Even though he went to Miami, he had the, that great season, and he won two, two Super Bowls there. I think he went to five Super Bowls there. So uh, he, that was one way he was different, is that he was a little bit better in Baltimore. And then another way that he was different is that he seemed, according to journalists that I talked to, he was a much calmer personality in Miami. Now, the Miami players would disagree. They would say he was still very, very difficult and a, uh, a shouter and tough. But according to the journalists in Baltimore, he seemed much, much more stoic in Miami than he had been in Baltimore. And, and, uh, Several of the players really described a very, a very hard, difficult personality in Baltimore. So he must have really, uh, really been something when he was here. Jack, if you look back at this now, and and look at the the football of of that period and the football now, is there room for a Johnny U today? Well, I don't know that there could be a Johnny U today because, again, I think that the change in the rules. It's. Uh, I don't know that you'll find another compelling man like John Yu. I think too. It's like looking at modern day sluggers and comparing them to Babe Ruth. They could, we could see some great guys today, but they'll never seem as mythical as Ruth because Ruth was the one that that kind of invented baseball in that way. He's the one that unlocked the potential of the home run. He's the one that seemed to do it better than anyone else. And so 
that's kind of that mythology is kind of attached to Ruth. And I think Unitas kind of unlocked the forward pass. He unlocked the strategy and the timing of the game. You can clearly see that guys like Bill Walsh copied the Colts uh, later on. And uh, they're credited with creating that West Coast offense, but they were really copying um, aspects of the offense that Johnny Unitas ran in Baltimore. And uh, I think the fact that Unitas was that trailblazer set them apart from everybody else. Well, it's an absolutely wonderful read. Collision of Wills, Johnny Unitas, Don Shula, and the Rise of the Modern NFL. Uh, Jack Gilden, we love the book. Thank you so much for coming on and talking about it with us. Oh, I really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. That's Jack Gilden talking about his book, Collision of Wills, here on Downtown the Podcast. We'll switch gears and talk about the modern game and a different type of book as well, a very entertaining one. Author Mark Leibovich coming up next after this word from our friends at Cross Insurance. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Five years ago, a couple of friends got together to create balanced beers that pay respect to the rich German tradition of brewing. Laird with the nuance and eccentricity of modern brewing, and Nice Brewing Company was born. Based in Limerick, Maine, and the foothills of the White Mountains, Dustin and Tim combine their love of beer, science, and their German heritage for truly unique brews. Whether it's the Nice Weiss, the Sun and Shine, IPA, Stouts, Porters, or any of their seasonal offerings, you'll love what they've got brewing at Nice, G-N-E-I-S-S. Ask for beers from Nice at your favorite restaurant or bar, and in the state of Maine, look for Nice in cans. Nice brewing, German-style beer from the woods of Maine. Our next guest is a national columnist for the New York Times Magazine, the author of several books, including This Town and his newest, a foray into football entitled Big Game, the NFL in Dangerous Times. A very interesting conversation with author Mark Leibovich next on Downtown, the podcast. I love the book, and I, I especially appreciate uh, the tone of the book. So many books on the National Football League uh, read like the audio book would have to be narrated by John Facenda. Uh, this, is, Facenda this, is, <laughs> this has got a very different feel, and I, I appreciate the way you approach the NFL. Well, thank you. I, I, that was sort of my intent. I don't, um, you know, I, I think a lot of, there's been a lot of sort of psycho, it's not a psycho drama around the league and how it's been marketed and how it's been covered over the years. And um, I'm an outsider. I cover um, national politics for the New York Times. And, and so this is kind of a little safari for me. And I was not encumbered by having to be part of the club. So um, I do think, you know, I think football is a great game, but I think it's a great game in spite of a lot of the people who own and run the sport. So I think that's somewhat reflected in Now, you wrote about Washington, D.C. in this town, now the NFL. Uh, which one, from your perspective, is the bigger swamp? 
a great question. I would say that it's all kind of the same swamp. And I would say, look, I mean, there's a lot of wealth, there's a lot of hate, there's a lot of ego, there's a lot of insularity, there's a lot of, I would say, I mean, self-importance involved. The one big difference between the two swamps between Washington and uh, people in Washington need to run for re-election. And I think I would love to some of these owners and maybe Roger Goodell up for a four-year uh, re-election and see how they fare. I'm guessing they might not do as well. <laughs> Have you ever been around a more curious group of people, and you describe it so well, uh, than these owners who, uh, uh, well, my goodness, they're, they're just a unique group, to say the least. <laughs> now, they're quite a bunch. I mean, so one of the big surprises for me and one of the big revelations for me in, in going into this project was the, just the level of incredible power that these billionaires have over our entertainment lives, both as owners of, you know, the biggest rated institution we have in America. I mean, football accounts for 77 of the top 100 most watched um, events, not just sporting events, but all events in America last year. And so with that comes a lot of leverage, a lot of power, and a lot of wealth. So what was interesting to me was how really smaller than life this group was compared to the distance the disproportionate amount of power they seem to wield. I mean, this is not a group that you would, for the most part, pick to, like, run some of the biggest companies in the world. Or, for that matter, Roger Goodell wouldn't be your first choice, or certainly my first choice, to be the CEO of Apple or Federal Express or Bank of America or something. So, uh, yeah, so I, this is sort of a, a dive into that swamp. And I, I certainly think it's, it's like a big sitcom. And <laughs> some just real colorful characters, everyone from Jerry Jones in Dallas to Mark Davis in Oakland to Robert Kraft in Foxborough. Um, it, just, uh, it just went on and on. So, yeah, I'm, I'm almost, I wouldn't say I'm nostalgic for it now that I'm back in politics, but it was a much more sort of cinematographic ride than I expected. <laughs> and, and I love that they, they live by the credo, only the paranoid survive. Yeah, I mean, that's a, a credo you hear a lot around the NFL headquarters on um, Park Avenue in New York, and it's sort of stolen from uh, Intel. Andy Grove, one of the founders or one of the legendary CEOs of Intel um, out in Silicon Valley, that was his, that was his mantra. And, but one of the differences is um, Andy Grove and Intel, that was sort of, it was sort of a call to vigilance. It was like, always be working, look around the next corner. Um, in the NFL, I sort of took the term as more kind of a sign of fear or more a sign of, you know, yes, the golden goose might be as fat as ever, but what we you just never know it's going to come and just sort of end it really quickly, whether it's the Ray Rice thing or the national anthem protest or concussions or what have you. So, with all this prosperity in the league, I found a constant, you know, mingling with precariousness and just the nervousness that the chandelier could just fall at any minute. We're talking with Mark Leibovich about his wonderful book, Big Game. Uh, Roger Goodell, it, it seems uh, from the book that he's, He's great at half of his job, the half that requires him to keep these owners happy and glad hand and, and treat the older yeah. owners especially like mentors, but not so good at avoiding yeah. scandal, which seems to follow him wherever he goes. Yeah, I mean, the other piece of his, his catering to, to the owners or his bosses uh, is making them rich. I mean, his number one job is to make billions of dollars for these billionaires who are already, you know, set for life. and. You know, many generations down that their families are set for life. But what he has, you know, especially over the last five or six years, found an incredible ability to do is to self-inflict all kinds of problems on the way, turn all kinds of uh, molehills into mountains, 
and and really just have no ability whatsoever to anticipate crises, um, to sort of sort of speak on behalf of the league in a compelling way. And like this is one of the most despised figures in all the sports. I mean, his approval ratings are probably in the twenties. I don't think he would get reelected, but um, the only voters that count in his estimation are the thirty-two owners that have to sign him to a new five-year, two hundred million-dollar contract. So, um, you know, he ain't going anywhere. But it is really kind of a bottom-line game when it comes to your owners being very, very wealthy and somewhat single-minded. One of the most curious uh, stories in the book is uh, what's referred to as the cold pizza story. Can you talk a little bit about that? <laughs> oh, I'm so glad you asked me about the cold pizza story. Yes. Um, <laughs> wow, what a great question. So after uh, Ray Rice uh, incident, which Ray Rice, a um, star running back for the Baltimore Ravens, was caught on film that was leaked to um, TMZ, um, sort of talking his fiance in an elevator. It was a really gruesome thing. There's a big scandal around how much the league knew. Initially, Goodell sort of slapped uh, Ray Rice on the wrist in suspension, but once that video became public, it was obviously a big to-do, and, and there was talk that Goodell would have to resign and so forth. So in order to sort of try to get out in front of this public relations crisis, basically worked with a Wall Street Journal reporter to really show how how serious Roger Goodell is about curbing domestic violence and all the meetings he had, and there's this detail that got picked up on a lot, which they uh, ordered in for pizza, but no one around the table ate the pizza until Roger Goodell would, and Roger Goodell did not touch the pizza, so the pizza went cold. So that became known as the cold pizza story, both in the annals of NFL public relations, but also media um, sort of enabling of the NFL. But the, the subtext of this, and I found out because I'm such an intrepid reporter, is that Roger Goodell does not like cheese, um, the reason being, um, according to my sources, and these are important sources, so I will not reveal them, but the sources being that he had a cellophane-covered piece of individually-wrapped American cheese back as a child, and it, it, it soiled him on, um, soured him on, on cheese for life. So apparently that's one of the many uh, demons that is affecting the way he runs the National Football League. <laughs> I love that story. Now, I, I feel like you forged a pretty good connection with uh, a woman that I, I worked with a little bit when she was a news reporter up here in Maine, Roger Goodell's wife, Jane Skinner, who's oh, a lot more fun. James. I did. Uh, not well, but uh, a little bit. But clearly, she's much well, more yeah. fun to be around than Roger. Yes, totally agree. No, I mean, there was a time we, we were at a, uh, the first owner's meeting I went to in Florida. Um, I had had a little bit to drink, and um, Jane Goodell, I, I met her, and I asked her somewhat sarcastically, actually not somewhat, entirely sarcastically, what is the most um, ostentatious rendering of the NFL shield, which is the corporate logo, that uh, the commissioner makes you uh, display around your estate? And she immediately said, well, there's the tattoo on his chest. <laughs> and I thought this was pretty funny, and I immediately told her, hey, I'm using that in my book. And she said, no, you're not. That was off the record. And I said, nope, I'm using it. She goes, well, I guess it's on the record. I should tell you about the tattoo on his ass. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you can say that on the radio. Yeah, we just did. Um, we're, we're people listening, but I think we just did. So apologies <laughs> to anyone I just offended. But anyway, that was uh, an important revelation. I went to fact check that with the commissioner himself. He assured me that he did not have any tattoos anywhere in his body. And uh, he was very serious about this. So I would say this is a he said, she said case. <laughs> about the tattoos. 
Uh, when your book is made into a film, I, I expect it will be a, a buddy picture. I can't wait to hear how they score it musically for your uh, opportunities to hang out with your BFF, Tom Brady. Uh, you know what? If you have any ideas for musical scores, I'm all for it. No, <laughs> Tom and I are great friends. We're very alike. I mean, you can't see me because this is radio, but um, we look exactly alike. We're both married to supermodels and uh, both have a lot of money. Both great quarterbacks. Um, unfortunately, I'm 53 and five foot eight, so don't have the tools that he have has right now. But you no, know, Tom is someone who, you know, one of the many sort of unlikely people who, in the course of writing this book and reporting this book, I got to know and. Originally, um, he was a subject of mine for the New York Times Magazine, and we kept in touch over the years. And, um, you know, the thing about writing Big Game was that it was sort of a sampling of getting to know league officials like the commissioner, a lot of the owners, um, and players like Tom, who, I mean, I think are part of this ensemble, but, but also they're these, you know, they're royalty in their markets, obviously, but, but also, I don't know, I found him to be... Um, Oddly innocent and, and oddly, um, I guess I'd say, uh, you know, just sort of fairly simple in some ways. I mean, I enjoyed hanging out with him, and I'm sure he's thinking 24-7 about how great it was to hang out with me. Well, no question about that. I, you know, in my, my impression of Bob Kraft in the book is a bit of a yeah. sad figure in some ways. I mean, you talk about how, yeah. how long he, he cried about uh, losing his wife and how often he talked yeah. about that with you and his, this sort of strange competition he has with Jerry Jones. And I, I found Jerry it all a little sad. Yeah, no, it is. I mean, look, Robert Kraft, who, you know, had tremendous success with the Patriots, uh, he lost his wife about seven years ago. I mean, they were married 50-plus years. And obviously, you know, how can you not have empathy for that? And he, he is quite open about it about how terrible, you know, that experience has been and how lonely he is. But at the same time, he's also 77 years old now, and, and like many NFL owners, is frequently seen in the company of um, much younger women. And I, I think he's a bit of a, a politician in that he, he does tend to tell the same stories over and over again and isn't sort of fully cognizant of the fact that he's not the smooth sort of public figure that he might think he is. But, look, he's had immense, immense success. Uh, I root for the Patriots, so I'm grateful for that and he like you know you would expect he very much wants to be in the nfl hall of fame uh jerry jones the owner of the dallas cowboys is in the nfl hall of fame so he's jealous of uh, jerry jones's hall of fame status jerry is je jealous because robert has five rings to his three and this is the kind of thing the billionaires worry about is Belichick, and you, you said you committed this as a patriots fan is he perhaps the least interesting of that triumvirate Oh, I think the most interesting, perhaps. I mean, I, I didn't really push them. I mean, admittedly, I didn't really push the ball forward very much there because um, unlike Brady and Kraft, I didn't really spend any time with him at all. Um, there is, I guess, a very good book out right now. I haven't read it yet, but, you know, Connor called Belichick that I think, you know, he doesn't talk to Belichick either, but he gets a lot of new and, and I think relevant, and it sounds like very interesting information. But, no, I mean, I think he's the best coach of certainly his era, if not all years, and um, you know, there's a lot of mystery around him that I think some people might uh, mistake as, as arrogance. And, you know, I might be one of those people at times. But he is, uh, you know, I'm glad he's a coach of the team I root for and hope he goes on for a while. Uh, one of the towering figures in the book as well, he is in our daily life, is uh, Donald Trump. Uh, we talked to Jeff Perlman yeah. a couple of weeks ago about his book on the yeah. USFL and, and how Trump pretty much screwed that whole enterprise up. It seems like Trump yeah. versus the NFL is just really the reality show of our times. 
It, it really is. I mean, this is like the twin spectacles of American life, and Donald Trump gets to be in the middle of both of them. And I think one of the interesting things about the last two or three weeks is the NFL has actually had a relatively um, peaceful couple of weeks, and, and perhaps because the president has been preoccupied with things like Red Kavanaugh and hasn't had time to tweet about the NFL and the national anthem protest, which I'm sure the NFL is more than pleased with. So, <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, the NFL is, is a club that Donald Trump has not been able to join. He's made many efforts to buy teams over the years, and um, I guess is the ultimate consolation prize. He gets the bully. He used to. He gets the heckle from the bully pulpit in the White House. Uh, whether it's Deflategate or, or any of the other little mini scandals, uh, have all of them provided a useful distraction from the concussion issue? Yeah, I think so. I mean, in, in some ways, we sort of look to, to football as an escape, and, and I think um, you know, I don't think they're smart enough to figure out that hey, why don't we put up this off season? reality show will be about deflating football because, uh, you know, often they're, they're much less harmless topics like, you know, domestic violence or concussions, things like that. So, um, no, but I mean, the thing about the NFL is I think fans do want to sort of revert their attention back to the field. And um, if they can, they can use the NFL, if they can use football as an escape outlet from their daily lives and also be more important or, or more, um, hire some elements of their their daily lives, things like politics, political debate. Um, you know, the NFL is there for them. The question is often asked, have we reached peak football? What's the worst enemy of the National Football League? Is it is it concussions? Is it, uh, as Mark Cuban suggested, overexposure? Oh, and will the league survive yeah. in spite of the people in charge? That, that's a great question. I mean, I think it's sort of the central question. I think I mean, I do think concussions and health and safety in general um, is probably existential issue one, and it's the kind of thing that, that sort of bleeds into all other issues. I mean, I think in addition to you know, the very real impact that, that this game played by increasingly fast and big and strong players is going to do to human or mortal human bodies is, is an ongoing challenge. And, you, know, you can make some, make some corrections at the margins around rule changes or equipment changes, things like that. But ultimately, it's not a safe game, and that's not going to change anytime soon. And that leads into things like insurance and things like liability and things like some kind of government regulation that could really make a huge, huge dent in the ability of people to watch and play and, and do business as a football entity. So, look, I mean, the, the worst comparison the NFL, like the, the, the comparison that they just read, is a comparison to tobacco, which was such a part of daily life. Mm. It literally was, you know, part of the air we breathe, right? And all of a sudden, you know, people are saying tobacco and cigarette smoking was going to be around forever. It was behemoth, and they were too powerful and too pervasive in life. And then there were all these concerns and studies about how unsafe it was and how unhealthy it was. And then all of a sudden, some laws came down and all kinds of studies came down. And um, next thing you know, you uh, have smoking being a far less significant part of the American experience as it is today. And, you know, football lives in fear of something similar happening. All right, Mark, our crack research team and our producer, Kerry, have come up with this. I think this would go well in the scene uh, where you're in the locker room 
uh, the room filled with the Ryans, as you put it, and you uh, you cross over to talk to John Brady at his locker. Here's the music we've chosen for that scene in the film. Okay. I think you'll like ready. it. All right, here we go. People, let me tell you about my best friend. He's a warm-hearted person who loved me till the end. People, let me tell you about me so much. <laughs> The courtship of Eddie's father, right? <laughs> exactly, Harry Nielsen. Yes. Now, so was that actually? I, I was, I was like five years old then. But was that actually a pop song or something you could hear independent of that, or was that a score written um, specifically for the courtship of Eddie's father? It was written for the TV show, but Nielsen released it on an album. I don't think it was ever a single, though. Yeah. Wow. I can, I you can... know what? I, I, I will. I take it as a great compliment and a great honor to be associated with that song in any way. <laughs> Well, we absolutely love the book. We're we're so glad you took a, a four-year diversion into the world of football because a big game, the NFL in Dangerous Times, is an absolutely wonderful read. And so glad we got to talk with you about it this afternoon. Rich, this is fun. Thanks for having me on. Mark Leibovich talking about his terrific book, Big Game, the NFL in Dangerous Times. Thanks to Mark. Thanks to author Jack Gilden as well. A couple of very, very good reads about the National Football League here on this week's edition of Downtown the Podcast, brought to you by Cross Insurance and Nice Brewing Company. Hope you'll join us next time around. Tell your friends, make sure to subscribe as well, and join us for next week's episode 25 of Downtown the Podcast.